Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. The need right now is to focus on the humanitarian response in Gaza. Famine is around the corner, and when the war is over, then it might be a different discussion. Gaza's main source of aid is in limbo. It's Wednesday, January 31st, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, UNRWA spokeswoman Juliette Tuma discusses the ongoing fallout over Israeli allegations that UN workers were involved in the October 7th Hamas attacks, and whether U.S. funding for the Palestinian aid organization might be restored. Also, artificial intelligence is in schools, whether we like it or not. We'll hear how teachers and students are using it. I have used AI. Sometimes I might be given a topic that might not be the most interesting to me. And so sometimes I use the AI to kind of get me started on the right track. And then from there, I can take it into my own hands. But first, Republicans who voted late last night to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas accuse him of failing to stop all of the migrants crossing the border, something no administration has been able to do, by the way. The Mayorkas impeachment could move to the Senate next week, but lawmakers there already have their hands full trying to craft a bipartisan deal that would shut down the border when migration levels get too high. But still, conservatives in the House say it doesn't go far enough. All that's to say there's a lot going on with immigration right now, in Washington and, of course, at the Mexican border. For the next 11 minutes or so, we're going to take stock of it all with two deeply sourced reporters on that beat, Camila Montoya-Galvez of CBS and Aurelis Hernandez of The Washington Post. They spoke with Deepa Fernandez and Scott Tong. All right, Aurelis, let me ask you about the border first. You're in Eagle Pass, Texas, where Republican Governor Greg Abbott refuses to take down razor wire. He's resisting a ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court. So, You're there. What's happening there? Are migrants still trying to cross where you are? Well, right now, I just came from Shelby Park. There aren't too, too many migrants that are still crossing in that particular area just because there's reams of of razor wire and they're pushing downriver and upriver where there isn't as much uh, razor wire and where Texas National Guard really isn't a huge presence. Mm. I mean, this is leading towards a constitutional showdown with the federal government over who enforces immigration. Camilo, how how does this end? Well, the Department of Homeland Security has been demanding that the Texas National Guard retreat from that public park that Ariel just mentioned. But Texas has been defying those demands, saying that it has to fortify that park in Eagle Pass to repel migrants from entering the country illegally. The number of people crossing the border, especially in Texas, has plummeted in recent weeks, though U.S. officials would attribute that mainly to increased Mexican enforcement and the holiday period, not necessarily 
Texas's actions, but there could very well be another legal clash between Texas and the administration over this because the Department of Homeland Security has now referred the matter to the Justice Department. Wow. And so, I mean, as we're waiting for what step the feds may take next, uh, Aurelius, uh, right now, help us understand uh, the reality when a migrant crosses and is apprehended by a, a border patrol agent, is seeking asylum. Where does that person go? What's the process and what is the capacity of the system? So right now, as Camilo mentioned, numbers are way, 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 way down. Uh, And if you ask residents here, it's in part because they themselves, and I've heard from migrants as well, that Mexican police have gotten a lot more aggressive with enforcement over there. But basically, Mm. if if I'm a migrant who's, you know, crossing the river, whether, you know, it's in Shelby Park or elsewhere, and I'm asking for asylum, uh, essentially that person is, is processed, their information is taken down. Depending on what capacity looks like at the, the processing center, uh, there are two border patrol stations here in Eagle Pass, as well as a, a larger sort of tent facility. They call it a soft-sided facility where mm. it has a capacity for about a thousand people. But sort of depending on, on those numbers, whether how much information they take, how long they hold you, depending on... Um, you know, it, whatever your specifics or your case, there isn't sort of like one specific outcome for every person. Okay. It has to do with what country you come from, you know, what kind of immigration uh, relief you're looking for. You could be sent to detention after spending a few days in that processing t- center. You could be, you know, released to one of the NGOs here on the border. Specifically, mm. there's okay. one here, Hope Border Institute. So, you know, given all of that, it sounds like there is a lot of activity at the border itself. Then there's this Take Back Our Border convoy that calls itself God's Army. It's headed to Eagle Pass, where you are, Aurelius. What are you watching for there? I think we're trying to understand where they might uh, gather and sort of what what they're planning to do. I think authorities have been watching this as well on Telegram channels and, and whatnot. They don't seem super concerned and we're not really sure how many people are going to show up. They're planning on assembling at a ranch uh, uh, several miles out of town, actually, in, in a place called Quemado. Um, but I think there is a little bit of worry that some of these folks might try to interfere with Border Patrol enforcement activities at the river. All right. Now, here in Washington, uh, at the end of a marathon hearing last night, the House Homeland Security Committee uh, chair, Mark Green, said it was necessary to impeach Secretary Mayorkas uh, because of drug deaths and crime that he claimed were linked to migration. Let's take a listen. To prevent those crimes, you need only enforce the immigration laws on the books, which is exactly what Secretary Mayorkas is willfully not doing. Now, Mayorkas defended himself in writing, saying deportations have have sharply increased since May. Um, Camilo, uh, where is the process right now in Congress as far as the uh, impeachment process? Well, Scott, the Republican-led House is moving full steam ahead with this effort to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, arguing that he has lied to Congress and also failed to fully enforce federal immigration law at the border. At this point, Scott, it really does seem likely that House Republicans will make Mayorkas the first cabinet secretary and official to be impeached since 1876. Mayorkas, however, will likely be acquitted in the Democratic-led Senate and will not be ultimately removed from office. But this is still unprecedented in Mm -hmm. the sense that Mayorkas has been one of the top 
Biden administration negotiators and these border talks in Congress that Republicans have demanded in exchange for support for additional aid to mm. Ukraine in its fight against the Russian invasion. So it is pretty remarkable. And are we anticipating a, a full vote on the House floor on this impeachment soon? I think the time frame is still up in the air, but mm. I did hear that it could happen as early as next week. Republicans want to move ahead with this process as quickly as possible. And uh, let's do a little fact-checking for us. You know, the claim there is crime is up because of migration. Is that indeed true? And increased deportations, are they keeping migrants from coming to the border? So that's a, it's a complicated question. When, like in the city of Eagle Pass or in any one of these border cities, you know, things like petty crimes, reports of break-ins and, you know, things being stolen out of backyards and sheds, those kind of, those are mostly anecdotal. There isn't increases in violent crime. But on the flip side of that, you have an increase in, in smuggling all across South Texas and the middle Rio Grande area. So it's sort of a, a checkered picture, DPS. Uh, they haven't Smuggling provided, of what, Aurelis? Of human beings, human beings who cross the river and then are told to wait in specific spots to be smuggled in cars around Border Patrol checkpoints that are uh, about 50 to 60 miles north of the river. Um, I want to uh, talk about the uh, the Senate, um, where there is a negotiation between bipartisan group of negotiators working for months on a deal that would make it harder to qualify for asylum. It would shut down the border between legal points of entry if a certain number of migrants, 4,000 or 5,000, are apprehended in a single day. Here's House Speaker Mike Johnson on this bill yesterday. Illegal immigration is illegal. It is against the law. Why would you tolerate 5,000 a day before you sought to, to uh, suddenly enforce the law. That would be surrender. The goal should be zero illegal crossings a day, not 5,000. Right. So, so that's the House Speaker, and, and he has said that this deal is dead on arrival. But in the Senate, it is still moving. Senator James Langford, Republican behind this deal, has said the 5,000 number was not accurate. Camilo, where does this legislation stand? Sure. So Lankford and the other senators trying to hash out this deal still expected to come together in the next few days, potentially as soon as this week. The agreement is expected to give the executive branch, as you underscored, Scott, this new sweeping legal authority to effectively shut down asylum processing in between official ports of entry along the U.S.-Mexico border when the level of migrant crossings reach a certain threshold. That would affect remote areas of the border like the Rio sector where Arelis is in right now, or New Mexico, California, Arizona, where migrants are regularly crossing into the U.S. without permission to turn their, themselves in to overtax federal officials who at that point often just release them because they don't have the resources to either detain them or to screen them for asylum. And so that is an authority that the president currently does not have to suspend asylum law. So that would be a pretty dramatic change. And the agreement is also likely to include instructions to officials to adjudicate cases for asylum seekers within six months. That would be another big change because right now migrants are waiting often years, as many as four or five years to get a decision on their cases. And so these proposals that are likely to be included in this emerging deal in the Senate would dramatically change policy at the border. And former President Trump has weighed in on this. He's been publicly pressuring Republicans to reject this deal because uh, he, he says it doesn't address the problem. President Biden 
has promised a more humane approach to immigration than Trump, and he's now talking about shutting down the border. I wonder, Arelis, if you can talk about, you know, the, the politics behind this. Is what, what kind of territory are we in here where, you know, it seems like President Trump is rejecting something that his party's been calling for all along? Well, shutting down the border, depending on what President Trump means by that, means different things to different people here on the border. If it's shutting down asylum processing, um, that pretty that would be pretty unprecedented because a lot of the people who are crossing, that's exactly what they're looking for, is a chance to claim asylum. Shutting down the border, however, would be a major punishment to border communities in general who depend quite uh, dramatically on the international bridges for their economies. So I think some clarity would be good. Yeah, and briefly on uh, on the politics to to Camila, we have heard about the Republicans and and what President Trump has had to say. Uh, what should we know about the politics for President Biden in one poll on this issue? His uh, approval rating is eighteen percent on this issue. Yeah, polling, including by CBS News here, has consistently shown that this is a major political challenge for President Biden and his administration voters generally feel that he has not done enough to curtail illegal immigration. And in some ways, they favor Republican policy proposals on this issue. And so this is going to be a major issue in the election. And that Mm -hmm. is underscored not just by the Mallorca's impeachment in the House, but Mm -hmm. by the president's opposition to this bipartisan deal. All right. Camilo Montoya-Galvez is with CBS News. Aurelis Hernandez of The Washington Post. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up next... The main source of humanitarian aid for civilians in Gaza is going to grind to a halt unless the U.S. and other allies of Israel reverse their decisions to pull funding. They did that after Israel accused some of the employees of UNRWA of participating in the October 7th Hamas attack. After the break, we'll hear from a spokeswoman for the U.N. agency about the ongoing investigation into those allegations and what the pulled funding means for Palestinians who depend on that aid. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. America's ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, is calling for fundamental changes to UNRWA before the U.S. will agree to resume funding of the U.N. agency that provides aid to Palestinians in Gaza. UNRWA fired several of its employees after Israel alleged they were part of the October 7th attack by Hamas. 
The U.S. and at least eight other countries have pulled their funding while the U.N. investigates. But UNRWA says it could run out of money for crucial aid work in a matter of weeks. Juliet Tuma is director of communications at UNRWA. And she told Deepa Fernandez that most of the accused employees have already been fired. We have uh, terminated the contracts of nine out of the 12 uh, staff members who have been accused of these very serious allegations uh, on the attacks on the state of Israel, the abhorrent attacks on the state of Israel. The commissioner general has terminated the contracts of these staff members. He also asked for an investigation that is now being conducted by the highest investigative body of the United Nations. And uh, should these um, allegations be substantiated, then this is considered a betrayal of the UN values. Not just that, but also a betrayal to the people that we serve in Gaza, in the region and around the world. And I want to ask you about the conditions on the ground right now in Gaza. We've been hearing how dire the food, the water shortages, the medicine shortages are. How much aid is actually getting in? Look, uh, Deepa, I was uh, there just recently in Gaza, and uh, this is my second uh, trip to the area since uh, the war began. And it was very clear how desperate the humanitarian situation was. More and more people are being forced to flee and are being pushed to one tiny piece of land, which is just over a quarter of the size of Gaza Mm. that's in Rafah. And the whole place is just full of these little structures that are covered with plastic sheeting turned homes for more than 1.4 million people now, a mm. desperate situation. And, and of these, these 1.4 million people, how many would you say your aid, UNRWA aid, is supporting right now? Well, we are UNRWA, the largest humanitarian organization working in Gaza at the the moment. Uh, At least two million people depend on UNRWA for their sheer survival. Look, more than one million people at the moment have taken and, and, and sought shelter in UNRWA facilities, primarily our schools that we opened for people who fled the war. We Mm. bring food uh, to people. We bring the trucks that come across the border. It's a huge, huge operation. So, Juliet, last year the U.S. gave you $340 million. Do you know how much of that is being suspended currently? And and what kind of an impact is that having right now for for your funding of Palestinians in Gaza? Look, as a result of this suspension, we have 16 donors who have stopped the funding to the agency. That amounts to more than half of our operational budget, $440 million. What this means is that we're not going to be able to continue our services and operations, including in Gaza, beyond the end of February. The U.S. ambassador is calling for fundamental changes to UNRWA. Are you heeding those calls and what kind of changes would you make? Look, I think um, the need right now is to focus on the humanitarian response in Gaza. 
That is the top concern for us. Also because famine is around the corner, we do know that there are pockets of starvation and pockets of hunger, especially in the north of Gaza. We're not able to bring in enough supplies. We should. There should be more efforts exerted on the Israeli authorities to allow us to do our work, UNRWA and other UN agencies. And when the war is over, then it might be a different discussion. And Juliet, I want to ask you, because since the start of Israel's war in Gaza, 152 UNRWA employees have been killed and UNRWA facilities have been attacked, I think it's 263 times. Do you believe Israel is behind those attacks? And and how do you hold them responsible for the deaths of your employees? Our facilities uh, have not been protected. These are UN facilities. By law, they should be protected. Now, what exactly happened? We are not at UNRWA in a position to determine. What we do know is we lost so many colleagues and that many of our facilities, including those where people were taking shelter under the UN flag, seeking protection, those facilities have been hit. Juliette Tuma is Director of Communications at the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Thank you, Juliette. Thank you for having me. We're following that story and a lot more at npr.org slash updates. Coming up next, how teachers are using artificial intelligence in classrooms. We'll also hear from two high school seniors about what they think of AI. Deepa has more after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit bluehost.com. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to high school, things are a lot different now than from when I was in school. For example, online classes are now pretty common, thank you, COVID. And the technology products used in schools have almost tripled in the last several years, according to recent reports. Most students now work on laptops, not lined paper. Chalkboards are now smart boards. And the latest technology to hit the classroom is artificial intelligence. 
Let's bring in reporter Mike Elson Rooney, who has been covering this for our editorial partner, Chalkbeat, a non-profit education news outlet. Mike, welcome back to Here and Now. Thanks so much for having me. So, Mike, a recent Ed Week survey found one third of surveyed educators are already using AI tools in their classrooms. Tell us how exactly teachers are utilizing this technology. Yeah, so I think there's a range of things. Some teachers are experimenting with how AI can actually help them craft lesson plans. You know, you can enter a prompt, tell ChatGPT what you're hoping to teach that day, and it can help spit out a lesson plan. And even if you don't follow it to the T, it can give you kind of a, a template. You know, I've, I've heard from teachers who have talked about the idea of using it to generate a kind of sample prompt to an essay question that students and the teacher can look over together and decide, like, all right, this is kind of a starting point, what works, what doesn't, and at least give them an idea for um, how to come up with their own responses. Okay. The, the Ed Week survey said that you know, the majority of teachers are still not using AI tools in their classroom. In fact, one third of surveyed educators even said they've never used them and don't plan to start. Is there a concern there, perhaps, that some classrooms with teachers who who aren't or don't want to use AI might get left behind somehow? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's still a lot of fear and, and uncertainty. I think for a lot of teachers, there's still this kind of feeling that when this technology first emerged, there were just so many concerns about how it could transform things in the classroom. And so a lot of teachers were were just really wary from that end and, and not really thinking about how to bring it in, but more about how to guard against it, its potential negative effects. But I think now that we're kind of a year or more into into this technology being widely available, that is more of a question of of like, this is here, it's here to stay. How do you kind of incorporate it in responsible ways into your class? I want to talk to you about students because I can hear many people out there, maybe teachers, maybe parents, maybe students saying, it feels like, you know, if you have a a teacher who has AI write a lesson plan, at least you're then going to have the teacher's smart eyes looking at that to see if it makes sense and what to keep and what to go. But With students, it feels like it's a little more dangerous territory. They could use it to, say, do research or write a paper for them. We're going to hear from a couple of high school seniors in a moment. But I'm wondering if you can tell us how students are currently using chat GPT and other bots like that at the moment in terms of their education. You know, I think one is just as kind of a tutor. It's kind of an easy way to to help brush up on a concept that feels a little foggy or just kind of speed up the process of of researching. And then I do think there are still real concerns and questions about students kind of overusing or misusing um, this technology when it when it comes to writing essays, for example. You know, I think teachers are are still kind of grappling with that. There are a lot of <laughs> tools out there that can theoretically help you tell whether something's been written by AI, but you know, those tools all have their own flaws and and so I think teachers are still trying to figure that all out too. So should adults be assuming whether you're a caregiver, a teacher or a parent that students are using AI these days? I think it's a pretty safe assumption that students are going to come into contact with it. We've heard from Many of the students that we've spoken to that if, if they're not using it themselves, they know of classmates who are. And so it's, it's really 
out there. That doesn't mean that students are using it to cheat and to write essays. And I think a lot of students don't want that to be the assumption from their teachers. And so I think just finding a way to kind of have those discussions without leaping to any conclusions is, is a really helpful starting point for teachers. Mike Elson Rooney is a reporter for Chalkbeat New York. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much. Now, let's bring in two high school seniors who are in the class of 2024. We've been talking with them throughout their senior year, and they're joining us now for their thoughts on AI. Paige Rowell is a senior at Westlake High School in South Fulton, Georgia. Paige, hello. Hi. And Aaron Ton goes to Mariner High School in Everett, Washington, where he's also a senior. Aaron, welcome. Hello. So we just heard Mike say that it's pretty safe to assume students have been in contact with artificial intelligence technology in some form or the other. I want to ask you if that's been the case for either of you. Have you used any sort of AI tools for school purposes? Paige, you go first. I have used AI as a useful resource. Sometimes I might be given a topic that might not be the most interesting to me. And so sometimes I use the AI to kind of get me started on the right track. And then from there, I can take it into my own hands and finish out my thought process. All right. And Aaron, what about you? I use um, AI a lot to help strengthen my writing in terms of what ideas to put down onto the screen or onto paper. For example, like I use Grammarly a lot, and there's a feature that's called Grammarly Go. And what it does is it doesn't write for you, but it reads your writing and it says things like you can choose many different options, like what weak points are in your writing, like what could be strengthened or what topics that you can go deeper in. And it's all free and it really helps me um, strengthen my writing. Yeah, I'll be honest, I've used Grammarly too. I I find it helpful. But I'm wondering if either of you worry that you might not learn some skills that you're using AI for, you know, maybe whether it's how to perfect your own writing or to get the grammar right or research. Does that occur to either of you? Personally, it doesn't necessarily worry me because the way I use it, now I can't speak for everyone else, but the way I use it is a way to kind of help me get in a good place where I can recognize what I'm missing. So when I'm writing, um, per se, and I and I need help completing something, it'll kind of get me there to that point where I can recognize, oh, this is what I need. And so next time I know that that's something that I need to focus on when I try to write next time. Okay. And what about you, Aaron? For me, I try to use it in a way, like I try to be very aware when I use it because it is really helpful to me. But sometimes I think I need to take a step back and realize that, okay, I got to make sure to also incorporate my own thinking and my own judgment of what I can look to improve before consulting it all the time. Because I feel like sometimes it might start to do my thinking for me. And that's not something I want to do. So that's something I try to make sure I keep in mind. So I'm wondering if you think there's anything that schools can do to ensure that AI is being used in a proper way, not misused, and possibly even, you know, embraced, put into the curriculum or used in in positive ways. Let's start with you, Aaron. I don't see any ways that it could be used to strengthen it besides helping brainstorm topics, because I think that much of the work needs to be done ourselves. Paige, did you want to add anything? Um, Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's more so just a moral compass that people encompass that allows them to know that having something else to write the whole entire thing is not right and that their moral compass will tell them like, 
oh, just use it to help you out. Use it as a booster. That's such a good point, Paige, because I feel like, do you ever fear that, you know, you you may know your moral compass is strong, and, and as Aaron pointed out, he actually wants to learn it himself, but there are other students, and, you know, how can you blame them? There's so much stress on seniors especially, but on all students. You might be competing against artificial intelligence, not actually the student sitting next to you. Do you worry about that? That's something that I do fear that can arise and has already arisen out of the opportunity of AI being implemented into our learning, but not something that you can completely control, which is kind of terrifying. All right. So to end, rapid fire question for both of you. So I just want a quick answer. Does AI help you as a student or is there too much chance that it might actually hinder you? Paige? I think that it definitely does help me. Okay. Aaron? I think AI helps me. I just need to make sure that it doesn't completely take over what I'm doing. Aaron Tan, Paige Rao, both seniors in the class of 2024. Thank you both for for sharing your thoughts and your uses of AI. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And you can learn more about Paige, Aaron, and the rest of our class of 2024 at youranow.org. That's our show. Here and Now Anytime comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Lynn Menegon, James Mastro Marino, and Hafsa Qureshi. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, Micaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green, with help from Michaela Varela. Mike Moschetto also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carleen Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor E-Trade from Morgan Stanley. Take control of your financial future with E-Trade. No matter what kind of investor you are, their tools and resources can help you be ready for what's next. Now when you open an account, you can get up to $1,000 with a qualifying deposit. Terms apply. Learn more at etrade.com slash NPR. Investing involves risks. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney LLC. Member SIPC. E-Trade is a business of Morgan Stanley. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me. And I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.